Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined by our resident master theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Uh, better than I have been the past couple of weeks. We've been delayed. I, I don't even remember the last time we recorded. It's been a while. It has been. Um, I went on vacation for two weeks and... A week and a half in, I got COVID, and COVID led to sinus infection. Sinus infection led to uh, some side effects from the antibiotics they put me on. So, a hmm. uh, two-week vacation turned into a three-week vacation, uh, half of which I was feeling terrible. So, yeah, a lot better now. And that also means we can Good. finally get back and record again. Yes. Yeah. On On my end, it's been... Uh, many planned things and events and one thing right after the other and then all of the logistics for those things not going according to plan. So trying to shuffle schedules and time and all of that sort of stuff. And we did put out uh, we did put out two posts. That's right. We did in between our last episode. We did. I forgot. Which you have not seen if you haven't liked our Facebook page, Thinking Theologically, or checked out the website, thinkingtheologically.org, where both of those things, uh, both those things are. I'm trying to remember exactly what those were. Um, let me think. Off the top of my head. It's, we had the problem with penal substitutionary atonement. Yes, and then resurrecting the resurrection. Yes. That's what it was. I, so. I should remember. I, I wrote it. So you wrote, but, you wrote both of those. Um, I write a lot of things, so... I don't always remember. Easy to get confused, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> and uh, thinking is hard right now with all the other stuff <laughs> that you've had going on. But uh, we had a couple posts go up. We do that on occasion uh, where we have some written things that go out as well. Sometimes uh, maybe uh, clarifying is not the right word, but uh, adding on to what some of these episodes have done. Uh, and then sometimes just kind of adjacent to the episodes, a little branch off of uh, what an episode has covered. So, uh, but we finished up a series last time we were recording, talking about Luke's gospel and uh, uh, at the table and all of this, uh, tracing through that, which, is, which has been very helpful for me. We've been dealing with hospitality in our Wednesday night class here. And so I kind of wa- I walked through Luke's gospel for one of those classes to set our uh, foundation of what hospitality is and what it looks like in practice. So uh, I, I found it beneficial, if nothing else. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> but we want to start today something new. Uh, I believe we said, uh, I believe we were talking about a five-part series with this about how to interpret uh, different pieces of the Bible starting today with the Old Testament. Do you have uh, do you have the thoughts for the episodes out in front of you that you could throw out? Because I, I don't remember exactly what they were. You know, we had wisdom literature, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So we'll, uh, we'll go, th- we'll talk about the Old Testament, uh, which is in this episode, it'll be, it'll be everything other than wisdom literature. So Psalms, Proverbs, okay. uh, Ecclesiastes, um, Song of Solomon, uh, Job, um, those those work a little bit different. Sure. Um, so the Old Testament is everything but that, and then we'll do wisdom, gospels, letters, most of which uh, the letters we have being Paul, and then we'll do Revelation, which is an uh, is a piece of apocalyptic literature. Yeah. Which, uh, when, when we do Revelation, it'll also help a little bit with Daniel, because there's a, a, some apocalyptic pieces of Daniel as well. Um, yeah, but yeah. those are the only two agreed-upon apocalyptic places in the, the Bible. There are some that maybe, or some that borrow some of the language. So, like, uh, yeah. destruction of the temple, second coming in Matthew, Jesus borrows some mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. apocalyptic language there but he's it's not an apocalypse uh at the same time uh sure. so uh but revelation is going to work different and not all of daniel is apocalyptic either 
Right. So uh, there's narrative there too. Um, but we'll do. Yeah. I'm actually teaching through Revelation right now as well, so <laughs> that will be <laughs> that will be helpful. Too late for me. That's that's what that'll be. That'll be the episode that I go. Oh man, I missed that when I was teaching this. <laughs> or, or maybe I get it all right. Who knows? I hope that that's the case. But the amount of time we're spending in places that are not Revelation because of how much John borrows mm-hmm. and references that that'll be a good episode. Okay, but today we're starting with the Old Testament, which as we uh, that's that's why I wanted that list is to to clarify some of that. This is everything but uh, the wisdom literature, and we'll deal with wisdom literature in its own episode because it's it's just very different uh, as a as a genre and the interpretation rules are going to change a little bit there. We're going to start with how to interpret the rest of the Old Testament uh, today, and I mean, I don't know how else to to get into it, but with, that's what we're doing. Uh, Where do we start with our uh, interpreting of the Old Testament? How do we begin that process? So I think the first thing we need to do is uh, you need to familiarize yourself with the context. And I think... Most people know that. Um, yeah. Now, whether we consistently do it or not is a different story. Um, but I think we know that we should do it. Uh, we just don't always do it. Um, but familiarize yourself. You know, Bible Gateway. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but Bible Gateway. If you want, if you look up a verse and then you say add context, it gives you like the verse before and after. Uh, which is not what we're talking about when it comes no. to context. Can, can you expand a little bit on what context is? Yes. Because so, it's not just the surrounding verses. I think there's f- three things that you look at when you're thinking of the context of a verse or of a passage. So you're reading a story okay. about... Uh, so we were talking about the story of Joseph before we recorded. So you're reading the story of Joseph, yeah. questions that you ask. Uh, there's the context of the book that's your reading. So the question of what comes before and what comes after the passage that you're reading. So um, Romans, for example, uh, Paul's making a sustained argument. Like it, it, it flows. There are different parts and people divide up Romans differently. Um, I divide it into uh, four parts, but they all flow from one to the other. Um, and so if you pick up uh, in chapter 11, which uh, is part of the uh, third section, uh, Paul's talking about the uniting of Jews and Gentiles together. Mm-hmm. Um, you, Paul can only say what he says in chapter 11 because of what he said in the first 10 chapters. So uh, understanding the context of the book, what comes before, how did Paul get here? And then also what comes after. So chapter 12 in Romans begins the application portion. So the question of how is what Paul is, how is what Paul is doing here? How does that help lead him to what he's about to say? And that helps us kind of get in the mind of Paul as a writer. So not just what are the words that he's saying, but how does he get to saying those words? And how do these words help him get to where he wants to go, which is the application portion of of Romans to give the the Romans some things that they can actually do and think and say. Um, So you have a context within the book. Uh, You you also have the context of uh, events. Uh, So what other world events or even local events are going on during the events that you're reading about? Uh, What happened before this? What happened after this? So uh, again, uh, let's say you're reading uh, Ezra Nehemiah. So you've got uh, the the story is talking about uh, exiles coming back to Jerusalem and rebuilding it, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding yeah. the city walls. Um, it's important to understand um, the history of Israel before. What, what has gotten them to be the people that God led out of Egypt to people that are in captivity away from home and now to come back to home? How did the temple and the walls and all that get destroyed? 
uh, understanding those events is going to help understand what Ezra and Nehemiah are doing when they co- when they're coming back from exile and rebuilding everything that has been destroyed. Um, but also, again, ask understanding how do these events lead somewhere? Because the rebuilding of all that enter- and the captivity enters in what we call Second Temple Judaism, which is the Judaism of the time of Jesus. So even if you're thinking about futuristically of understanding Jews in the New Testament, uh, you've got to understand what led to the exile and how the rebuilding of the temple and of the walls leads to this new form of Judaism that is the kind of Judaism even Jesus was a part of. So you've got all of these events that are going on. Um, and then finally, asking the question of who wrote the the book, um, when did they write the book, what was going on when the book was written, uh, what might have led to the book being written. So here's an example of, of how this works. Um, the story of Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're told that at the beginning of the story. So, uh, again, when you're thinking of events, that's kind of important because the ending of Judges says every man did what was right in his own eyes. So there's a ton of evil going on in Israel during the period of the Judges. And the story of Ruth begins by telling us, making sure the readers know this is the time period that that's happening and when all these bad things going on. Um, the Understanding those events help us to understand the story a little bit. Because you think of uh, Naomi and Ruth coming back to Jerusalem out of after leaving, um, or uh, coming back to Israel. They're in Bethlehem. Uh, so they, they, they come back to, to Israel. Um, and as widows, it would have been difficult to survive. Uh, that's where you rely on friends, family members to do what the law actually tells them they're supposed to do for widows. But when you remember, oh yeah, this period, nobody did things that were very good. You understand, uh, there's not probably much of an expectation for people to actually follow the law and care for them as widows. Which is why Boaz becomes an even greater character, I think. Because you're like, Mm. this might be the only man in all of Israel who actually follows the law. Yeah. From what we know of the time period. Um but also, uh, when you think about the events that that leads to, uh, Ruth gets us to King David, who's a pretty big deal uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, so that's an example of events. But when you think about writing, we know that the story of Ruth was written after it happened, because in the conclusion, it shows how Ruth leads us to David. So at minimum, the story's written during the time of King David uh, because David's mentioned and he wasn't alive when the story actually took place. So that also changes the way we read it. Why was it written? Well, if it was written during the time when David was on the throne, maybe it's written to defend David. Uh, People accused him of not being... Uh, qualified to be the king because his great-great-grandmother, whoever Ruth was, was a Moabite. She wasn't an Israelite. So David actually has non-Israelite blood. He's at least a portion of him. is not. He's not a full-blood Israelite. Um, and we know that David had a rough start to being king because the kingdom was divided for the first part of his reign. Um, not everybody wanted David to be king. So maybe that's why Ruth is is written, and that will change a little bit of the way that we read it. Uh, other people have argued that Ruth was written during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they come back from exile, and they make everyone uh, divorce their foreign wives. All the men have to divorce their foreign wives and send them back home. Um, and that mm-hmm. could easily lead someone to say, well, foreigners are bad. We don't like them. The story of Ruth, if it was written during that period, is to speak into that and say, no, what foreigners aren't bad. The problem is not foreigners. The problem is the worship of other gods. And because Ruth is an example of a foreigner who worships Yahweh and the blessings that come from that. So 
it could have been written to kind of balance what Ezra and Nehemiah are saying of get rid of all your foreign wives because they're going to lead you into idolatry. Ruth may balance that out by reminding people the problem isn't that they're foreign, it's the gods that they worship. So uh, that's what I mean by thinking about uh, the writing of it, particularly in the Old Testament. Who wrote it? We don't know for a lot of the Old Testament who wrote it. Uh, but we can start to get ideas about maybe when it was written and why it was written, like the, the story of Ruth. Um, if it was written during David or Ezra and Nehemiah and why someone may have sat down to write it. I think we forget that writing was a very time-consuming and expensive thing to do. So you didn't just write mm -hmm. to write. There was a purpose. Something had to compel you to spend the time and the money to write it. Um, and so to me, Ruth is a great example of... There's a couple reasons that could have led someone to say, yeah, we need to write this story down. A story sure. that was likely floating around orally that had been told from generation to generation to generation. But something happened. David, Ezra, Nehemiah, maybe something else that made someone say, all right, this needs to be written down so everyone can have access to it. Um, I put in our show notes, if you look at them, uh, the book, uh, How to Read the Bible, book by book. Uh, I, have it, I actually have it sitting next to me. Um, there's a short section for every book of the Bible, uh, five to 10 pages, usually. Um, sometimes even less than that. Um, and it gives you uh, the content of a book, the author, the date, uh, the recipients, the occasions, uh, what the emphasis of the book is. Uh, it gives you an overview and kind of a little walkthrough of the book, like how is the book divided, what are the different sections. And then there's always a section on advice for reading the book. So those other events that are going on in the world and things like that. Um, to me, I found that to be one of the most helpful books because it's short and to the point. Uh, if you want to deep dive into something, it's not really the best. But for uh, so the casual student of the Bible or for someone who's done more in depth but needs a quick refresher because they haven't taught or written about the book in a while uh, I found how to read the Bible book by book to be a great resource uh, it's written by uh, Douglas Fee and Gord uh, Gordon uh, Douglas Stewart um, so that I've might be a helpful resource for I second that the I context also have the book also have the book it's been very uh, very helpful as far as a uh, a uh, as you said more kind of broad here here's a let's just look at the book real fast on the, the outside get the surface and then uh, if you want to deep dive from there you can but if you're just looking to get an overview of the context which does require work uh, as I, I think was clear with what Spencer was talking about here but it what was also clear is doing the work of understanding the context uh, really helps to open up not I want to be careful how I say this, it, not opening up new meanings might be new to you to look at, to look at Ruth and go, okay, if it was written at this time, then this is a meaning that, that opens up with it. Okay. Well, that's not a new meaning. Uh, that is, that was the intended or, or one of the intended meanings. That's why it was written then. Uh, and so to, to do the work of that context will help open up understanding of why those things were written, when they were written, to whom they were written, and all of that. Yeah, we if if you listen, if you ever listen or read uh, someone who is a linguist, so into linguistics, um, and there's linguists who uh, study the Bible. So it, it's linguistics is the study of language. Uh, one of the things that they'll say is that words have no inherent meaning. We give meaning to words or we negotiate the meaning of the words, right? They're, sure. they're, uh, words at the end of the day are just shapes. So there's not this idea. And I think sometimes we think about this uh, or we, we do this particularly when we're reading the Bible is we 
because we believe the Bible's inspired, we believe, well, there's an inherent objective meaning to these words, and that's what we have to find. Not true. That's not the way language works. Mm. Uh, we give meaning to, to, to the words. So uh, when you go back to the context, uh, what you're trying to figure out is the the meaning that the author in, tried to encode in these words. So what what we're trying to draw out that meaning. Um, and then the other thing being, though, this is kind of getting deep, but you don't people don't That's have right. to go there but when you uh negotiate the meaning of words it's not always the same meaning so you could have a story in the old testament that meant different things to israel in different times in their history and sometimes those different meanings can contradict one another it, it, that's the way that language works um but my point being if we want to try and start with an original meaning we have to the best of our ability to try and understand that context and figure out what meaning because the again the way that language works is i have something in my mind that i encode into the words that i say and pass on to you that you decode to get meaning from now the problem being is what you de decode from my words may not be what i tried to encode into them and that's where we get misunderstanding um, and so that's what we're trying to do when we're reading the Bible. That's the way that language works is uh, we want to try and figure out what did the original author encode in these words hmm. and try to get back to that. We, we can't do that perfectly because we have our own biases that we're coming from, um, the ways that we negotiate with language. But that's the goal, I think. And then we can use that to negotiate and renegotiate some meaning for us from it. Oh, okay, this is what I think was originally going on. Now, how can I negotiate some meaning for me when I go home today or when I walk out of the church building or whatever it may be? Yeah, and that's that's key, uh, a key for the context work because otherwise what we end up doing is uh, bringing our understanding experiences and all of that into whatever text it may be, especially true of the Old Testament, uh, and especially bad for the Old Testament because of how far removed it is uh, from our personal understanding and experience. Um, we'll, we'll take that into the Old Testament and then in a lot of cases just jump right into the what does this mean for me application side of things. And if we don't do all of this other work, then we're going to end up somewhere that the text doesn't want us to go at all. Okay. There's a lot more to say about that, I think, but uh, we'll, I imagine, explore more pieces of that as we go through. Um, the next part of understanding the Old Testament is understanding the worldview that they had, which is not the same as the worldview that we have. It's not the same as what a lot of what we see within the New Testament. So even from a biblical worldview standpoint, the New Testament's very different from... Uh, the Old Testament, uh, and we identified three areas that uh, are very important here uh, in understanding the Hebrew worldview. Uh, the first one being uh, their understanding of the afterlife and salvation. What did they believe about those things, Spencer? So the the Hebrews did not believe in an afterlife. That is, there wasn't a belief of, of heaven or hell uh, those are very New Testament concepts. Those aren't concepts we see in the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrews believed that everyone, both good and evil, go to Sheol, which just means the place of the dead. That there's yeah. th there's a place that dead people go. Um, it's not heaven. It's not hell, because both good and bad go to this place. Um, it's hard to determine what Hebrews actually believed goes on in Sheol. Like, are you still alive? Are you still conscious? Like what the, the if, if sure. you read discussions yeah. of Sheol in the Old Testament, it it's not clear. And part of that is probably that there wasn't like an agreed upon understanding of Sheol. Like the agreed apart was everyone who dies goes to Sheol. But 
after that, it doesn't seem that there's a fully agreed upon or developed understanding of Sheol. Um, and as an understanding of the afterlife develops, which is during the intertestamental period, that's how we get heaven and hell on the scene in the New Testament, is that the, an understanding of the afterlife developed. Um, but there wasn't a very developed understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament. And so uh, what that means is that the Hebrew people could not have understood salvation as going to heaven when you die. That's what most Christians think about. When we think about salvation, we think about going to heaven when we die. Well, uh, there's no heaven. Uh, there's unclear whether you're or not you even have consciousness once you die. So there's not a go to heaven when you die. And so in the Old Testament, when God promises salvation to Israel, he's promising them salvation here and now in this world. It's salvation of a good harvest or to be able to defeat your enemies or something like that. Like when, when you read through the Old Testament, when there's sin in Israel, they lose in battle. Right? When right. they are forgiven, when they have been extended salvation, they win in battle. Like it, it's when there's sin in Israel, a famine comes. When they're forgiven, you have a blessed crop. Like it, it's very here and now physical, tangible salvation. Uh, I will say we lose some of that. In Christianity, I don't think it goes anywhere. If you read the Gospels, there is an idea of, yeah, uh, people who follow the God, God, we do get blessings now. It's it's not a, your life's going to be great. It's not a prosperity thing. Right. But Jesus does say that, you know, even this, uh, when he talks about not worrying, because God will provide for your basic needs as he does for mm -hmm. the birds, That that's a here now aspect of salvation. Yeah, uh, it's not just yeah you suffer everything now and you wait for salvation in the next life. No, there's still an aspect of salvation now. Uh, just the New Testament has an added piece and an expansion of what that means. Not a get rid of the old and bring in something completely new, but it's an expansion. Uh, that's what you have with Sheol as well. It's like okay, everyone dead who goes here, and then that gets expanded. We get heaven, we get hell, um, and we get eternal ideas of salvation yeah the the physical expansion ideas is good there, there is still physical blessing and uh punishment as well like uh uh romans one you know they they've received in their flesh the penalty due to their like this idea of okay there's there's physical consequence too but the expansion of that is movement towards a time when uh, there, there won't be this tension between mm -hmm. good and evil. It will be solved, and so we'll move to a place of only blessing or only curse, uh, however that may be. Um, that's that's where that's headed. Which go listen to all of our series on new heavens, new earth stuff. By the way, because <laughs> our understand our understanding of afterlife and salvation is not great either. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, the, the stressing of the physical Deuteronomy 11 is really good with this. Like, as they're headed into the promised land and Moses just lays out exactly what you said, you know, follow the commands of God. Crops will be great. Rain happens. Uh, you'll win your battles, have these great homes. Don't follow these things. You're going to lose in battle. Rain's going to stop coming. Crops won't grow. It just is all very immediate and tangible and shows very quickly where where they are at in relationship with God mm -hmm. that exists to some degree now still uh, but there's something more we have a more fuller understanding because of Jesus and uh, what he's done but that's extremely important because it's so easy to just walk back into the Old Testament and go ah see this thing Isaiah is talking about, that's heaven stuff. That's not how they read that. <laughs> they read that as the Messiah coming to build the temp the, the kingdom in Jerusalem again, like David. It's no wonder they were anticipating that. They had only ever been given physical mindset with all of these things. You know, we shouldn't be harsh on them for that. We come to the New Testament and they don't understand Maybe the suffering Messiah idea and all of this. But okay, uh, afterlife and salvation uh, is one 
very important part of their worldview to understand. Number two, alongside all of this, uh, the resurrection. What did the what did the Hebrews believe about resurrection? Uh, they didn't. And that that goes back to the idea of Sheol. If all the good and evil go to this one place and that's all that we know, there's not a lot of room in that worldview for a resurrection from the dead. Um, So there's not a concept of the resurrection. Uh, That was a belief that developed um, among the Jews during the intertestamental period. So again, as their understanding of the afterlife and salvation developed— we also see a development of a theology of resurrection that kind of goes hand in hand, right? So you're like, okay, we do go somewhere when we die. Um, there is eternal ideas of salvation. There is So with that, there is a hope of resurrection. All that kind of begins to develop. And then it's pretty fully developed by the time we get to the writings of the New Testament, which is something, if you just read through your Bible, you'll notice that in the Old Testament, again, not a discussion of heaven, not a discussion of hell, not a discussion of afterlife, not a discussion of resurrection. And then you start reading the New Testament and it's all over the place. Yep. Um, it Like it came out of nowhere. And if you're unfamiliar with the literature written between the Old and the New Testament, it does come out of nowhere. Uh, but if you're familiar with that, you can actually see how that develops within Jewish thought and theology over time, which gets us to the understanding of the New Testament that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John and uh, everyone uses in their writings. Yeah, uh, and I, I think we see kind of both pieces of this a little bit. You have David and the loss of his son, right? He's like, I'll, I'll go to him, but he's not going to come back to me. Uh, this idea of, well, we're all going to die and go to the place of the dead, but that's that's the hope that he has. <laughs> it's like, I'll be reunited with him in death, but there isn't going to be this resurrection. Even me saying reunited is, we, again, we don't know exactly what their beliefs on what happened after the death thing, consciousness and all this stuff. But you have David kind of sharing that language of, well, he's dead and that's that's it. You know, I can mourn and then I need to move forward. Uh, but then you have, you know, Jesus in discussing with the Sadducees and things like that. Uh, he does go into the Old Testament to say, you know, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's And uses that as an argument for resurrection. We shouldn't go to the Old Testament, though, and say, well, see, you know, Moses wrote that down or David wrote this down in the Psalms. And so they had an understanding up. No, uh, that's not necessarily the case. It's not that it wasn't there in, like, in the text, but they did not have that understanding of it. No, and Jesus provides that understanding of Je- it. Jesus is allowed to do that. We're not. Yes, because uh, yes. we do the same thing with when we read the creation account. Let us make man in our image, and we're like, oh, the Trinity. No. Um. Uh, not not what's going on uh mm. because even the new testament doesn't have a developed trinity <laughs> that, that comes after the writing of the entire bible that yeah. we yeah. and then we go and we start to read that back into the bible and i think we have license to do some of that reading into the new testament but when you have to understand that original author original audience um all of that they wouldn't have understood that as the Trinity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to say that Father, Son, and Spirit weren't involved in creation, but you're right. stretching the meaning mm-hmm. of that passage, which uh, Jesus and Paul do that with other passages. They have a right to sure. do that. Uh, you and I, not so much. Um, uh, not. I, I don't think we have the stretch scripture card that Jesus and Paul had. We could go back to a, a text like that and maybe present a case for the, uh, all th- all three being there, perhaps. But what we can't do is say, uh, "See, this is the this is the meaning that was buried." Here. No, <laughs> what did chapter one of Genesis mean for the original intended audience? It wasn't this buried thing that we like. There, there was something that them reading it then. They walked away with it and went, I understand. 
I understand why this is important. That's why you end up with a lot of dual fulfillment prophecy stuff um, of this meant something when it was said in Isaiah, but it also means this other thing because Jesus has now come. Uh, and so we, we have to be, uh, we, we should accept that whenever, you know, Matthew or Paul or Jesus does that but very careful not to do that ourselves to say, well, I think this is here, and so I'm bringing it there. No, maybe you can make an argument. We, we, have, we have argument cards, <laughs> but we don't have the stretch the scripture card like, like they did. Okay, last, uh, last of the worldview pieces here, um, evil. What did they think about evil? <laughs> How did that so, work for them? So this might be a little bit of a surprise, but Hebrews believed that everything— both good and evil came from God. There was not much of an understanding of a separation of evil spiritual beings and good spiritual beings. So Mm. like uh, today, Christians, you know, we want to say, well, God created everything. So in one way or another, everything that is evil comes from God. But we talk about it as, um, you know, you, you take something that, that God has, has created, uh, and you change it in some way. So, um, you know, our desire, God has given us certain desires, but we can bend those and use them in ways that are evil and not for God's good intention, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to separate uh, good beings, evil beings, and talk about how that happens in a way that defends God, because we're like, well, evil can't come from God. So we... Uh, that's the way that we want to talk about it. Uh, Hebrews didn't care. They, we have to understand, they weren't asking the same questions we are. They weren't concerned with, well, I have to protect God from producing anything evil. That's the way sure. we feel. And I'm not saying that's a wrong thing to feel. Uh, Hebrews just didn't feel that way. Uh, so, for example, it bothers people when God sends the evil spirit on Saul. Yeah. Like, What? But the problem is we're asking questions of the text that the Hebrews weren't concerned about. Like, we're like, how can God, who all good, do that? They didn't ask that question. It didn't matter to them. And that's hard for us to imagine. Well, why didn't it matter to them? I don't know. I just know it didn't. They weren't asking that question. It didn't bother them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you read the book of Job. You have, in our English version, Satan who does those things to Job. Bad translation, not Satan. That's the next point. There's no concept uh, in the Old Testament of Satans or demons as we see in the New Testament. Um, Not Satan, uh, a worker for God. We want it to be Satan because otherwise the story bothers us. Uh, It didn't bother uh, the Hebrews like it bothers us to have God doing those things. So everything good and evil comes from God. And so there's no concept of Satan or demons, at least as we understand these characters in the New Testament. Um, There was a plethora of spiritual beings. It wasn't that they didn't believe in other spiritual beings. Uh, Example is the divine counsel stuff that you see throughout the Old Testament. I know Mm -hmm. we're going to do a series uh, probably after this on spiritual realm stuff, and we'll dive into that more. So they're, they did they do believe in spiritual beings, but it's not the way that we believe in them or the way the New Testament talks about them, which again goes a problem. We want to read about these characters in the Old Testament, and we're like, well, that's Satan or the devil. Well, no, it's not. Or, oh, that that's an example of demons that we see. Uh, not, not exactly. Maybe. Like, maybe. But again, that was a development. And so you're asking, you're not reading that back into, but you're understanding this was a very earlier stage in the development of an understanding of the spiritual realm. And uh, so we have to be hesitant of trying to read later developments back into these earlier stages and saying that's what they're talking about. I'm not saying that never happens. Right. Um, I'm just saying you have to be very careful, and you can't just assume that this being that's being talked about is the same as you know the demons in the Gospels. Yeah. Uh, be very careful with that, because that's a much later development in Hebrew and then Jewish thought. To your to your point about like bending 
bending those uh, things uh, that come from God and using it in a way that uh, that go against the created order and all of that. That's what evil is, but ultimately its origin is in God, that, that kind of idea. Even the from a spiritual standpoint, those um, and this is not in, this does not include the lying spirit you mentioned, or the the evil spirit, or the lying spirit with King Ahas. Those are both agents of God <laughs> working on his yep. behalf. But you have things that work against God from a spiritual standpoint. But even the phrasing of those things, they are called sons of God, uh, like we see in the Job uh, the Job account there. Uh, so you, their their origin is rooted in God, but there is some. Maybe they're working against their created order, but it's still from Him. Uh, and James pushes back on this, which is interesting. But that's again, that's a New Testament thing uh, when he's dealing with temptation and all this. Uh, in James one, uh, he he deals with that kind of idea and all that stuff and demons as well. So it's. That's that's interesting in thinking about all of this. Uh, with James writing about uh, writing to it appears Jewish Christians um, in that early writing, but uh, yeah, really really interesting when you start to look at the stuff in between all the New Testament, uh, the the intertestamental period, and the development on all three of these things: afterlife, salvation, resurrection, evil, all that stuff. You look at how that developed from uh, into what we understand as the New Testament and go into it and go, wow, this stuff just came out of nowhere. Right. It does if we just read it from from uh, Malachi, then jump right into Matthew. We go, man, there's all this stuff <laughs> that was not here and what I just read. Yeah, but it, it was part of their developing uh, belief system, uh, ultimately rooted in Old Testament things. But they didn't have that understanding mm-hmm. when that was going on uh, at that time. Uh, okay, the next the next few pieces here are, uh, I think, a lot simpler for us to 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 cover through. Uh, key characters and events from the Old Testament is what we're concerned with uh, next year. And we've got a few few individuals here on this. Spencer, who are they? Uh, yeah, just when you're reading the Old Testament, just make sure to remember Abraham, mm-hmm. the promise made to Abraham of a multi ethnic family. His descendants would be greater than the stars in the sky. The entire world will be blessed. Uh, remember Moses in the Exodus, particularly yep. Exodus nineteen three through 6, where God kind of gives Israel their mission, their job description, if you will, uh, in essence, to be a light to the world, uh, to be holy, to be his treasured possession, um, to be a priestly kingdom. Uh, and then remember King David— uh, through whom was promised uh, the Messiah to come. Because sitting behind almost everything in the Old Testament are these stories. These yes. uh, Israel is waiting <clears throat> for the fulfillment of the promise to, to Abraham. Their identity is rooted in people that were led out of Egypt by God. And then eventually when you start getting towards the end, the hope of a Messiah, it's the Messiah through the line of King David for another King David. That's later development. But I'll give a quick example. When you're reading the prophets and God's mad at Israel because they've worshipped other gods or they're not treating the widow and the orphan well or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, the reason is because of the Exodus. It's God led them out of Egypt to be his special people, to be a light to the nations, and they're not doing that. And so that makes God mad. So he sends a prophet. He sends a judge. He lets them be defeated. He eventually sends them into exile. That's all rooted back in who they are as an Exodus people. But their hope, even when they're in exile, is for the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and the Messiah to come through the line of David. So read those stories, be familiar with those stories, and have them in the back of your mind when you're reading any passage in the New Testament. I mean, uh, in, in the Old Testament, any passage. Have those stories in the back of your mind because they probably play a significant role in whatever story you're currently reading. 
I think the Freudian slip <clears throat> of the New Testament was appropriate as well, because you want to have these three. We'll talk uh, about that when we talk about the New Testament, because <laughs> it is you, important as well. You want to have these in mind when you're reading through the Bible, wherever you may find yourself, <clears throat> period. Uh, just essential foundational stuff. Uh, okay, uh, how should we read the the books of the Old Testament, excluding wisdom literature here? The, this is one thing that I really push. Read the books as works of literature. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, they tell history, but they're not a history book. Right. Um, they are works of literature, which means be concerned with things like plot. Like, what's the plot of the book? What What is the author trying to do with this book? He's not just trying to tell history. What is the plot? What's the author trying to do by telling the story of Esther or of Ruth or of the Exodus? What's the point? Uh, character development. How does the author want us to think about this character? So again, you're reading a story of Ruth. You have Naomi, you have Ruth, you have Boaz as your primary characters. How are they developed in the story? How does the author want us to think about these characters? Uh, So character development. Uh, Redaction is why are things told in the way that they are and in the order that they are? So uh, examples that Jack and I were talking about before. Uh, my example is the story of Tamar that comes in the middle of the uh, story of Joseph. So you get through mm-hmm. most of the story of Joseph, and then you get the story of Tamar, and then you finish the story of Joseph. Like, it doesn't belong there. It breaks up the story of Joseph. Well, Redaction asks, why? Why does the author put that story there? What's the point? What are they trying to do? What do they want us to think? Why is it told like that? Um, Make sure to read them not like you're reading a history book, uh, but read them as works of literature. Ask the questions about the plot, about the characters, about redaction. Why is this story here and not there? Why is it told in the way that it is? Again, what's the author trying to convey in the way that the story is written and told? Yeah, the the example I brought up with Spencer was uh, Dinah. Same sort of situation there in Genesis, right in the middle of Jacob's name being changed and not uh, not dying at the hands of Esau, who he was afraid of, but still not fully trusting in God after that. And then he's called Israel again. But in the middle of that, it says, hey, let's talk about Dinah and how she was sexually taken advantage of and how the two brothers came to vengeance and all of this. Uh, but there's a reason that that's inserted there in the text. Like we, it's the story within the story, but the the lesson in that story explains what's going on around it too. Uh, and man, I when you do that and you look for those things and you go, this feels out of place, and you start asking the why is this here question and look at the stuff around it. Uh, it's cool. There, there are a few things cooler when you do that and go, I get, I think I get this. I think I get why this is here. Uh, so read, read the Bible like it's, uh, don't read it like a research project. Read it like it's a, an actual well-written series of books that is trying to tell this incredible story because it is. Uh, and it does. Okay, we have some honorable mention stuff here uh, for those that want to maybe go a little deeper in the interpretation of the Old Testament. Uh, what are what are those recommendations here? Just if if you're gonna be serious about studying the Bible, uh, get a commentary, get a good commentary set uh, that can help you. I I like the uh, New Interpreter's Bible commentary set. Hmm. Um, there's uh, a lot of good, more modern scholars that write a lot of those things, and those have been a lot of them are very helpful for me. They're not all good, but get you a good commentary set. Um, get you a Hebrew dictionary where you can look up words, um, or you can also get something like uh, I have a Jewish study Bible uh, that's written by Jews who are going to understand the Old Testament uh, differently than Christians are. Uh, I find that sure. very helpful. So when I'm reading Old Testament packet, uh, passages, I pull out my Jewish study Bible and read the the, the notes from the rabbi uh, who's yeah. uh, coming from a Jewish tradition. Uh, so get yourself some resources that, that, that will help, some commentaries, uh, dictionary, uh, 
I would, like I said, I would recommend the Jewish Study Bible as well. Um, just some of those resources that, that can help you figure out what's going on and can help you do some of the things that we've talked about. They can help you understand the work as literature, help you understand some of the Hebrew worldview that's at play in the story, and help you with the context. Um, what other events are going on? When was the book written? All those things can be helped out if you just have a couple of helpful resources. You don't have to have a ton, but just if if you're serious about studying it, get you a couple. Get you at least one commentary set. Uh, get you one study Bible, um, get you one dictionary, and that will be very helpful. Yeah, one one comment about commentaries is uh, don't don't go to that as like the first thing that you do. Try to do some of the work that we talked about here of look around at the context, try to ask quest- your own questions of the text and try to come to your own conclusions. But commentaries can be extremely helpful too in just uh, providing you a check on, well, this is where I came to, oh, wow, I I was way off. (laughs) Like I've looked at four commentaries and nobody came to the same conclusion. Maybe I missed something, you know, big here. Uh, Or you can maybe see like, okay, it looks like this is where people kind of draw their conclusions. So maybe I'm not too far off with this. Uh, That's that's a way commentaries can be used. Use it as a resource to help, not as a crutch of, well, before I read the text, I'm going to open this commentary and see what it says. Do your work and then do some more work uh, with the help of some others uh, through these resources. Okay, that's the first episode of Interpreting. Uh, We'll deal with wisdom literature in the next episode, and uh, hopefully you find these things helpful, and I'm sure we'll have some written stuff in between here that'll aid in some of this too. And if you are studying and find this stuff helpful, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Let us know on Facebook at our email, uh, strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Check us out on Facebook at Thinking Theologically and go to thinkingtheologically.org for these episodes, show notes, and any of the written stuff that we put out as well. I'm Jack, and that's Spencer. We'll see you next time.